Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning and welcome to Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Gene Wilhelm, and you are very welcome to be here. Uh, We have an interesting program today. Uh, We're going to be talking about two American Catholics who have military backgrounds uh, that are on the path to sainthood. So we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, I welcome all of you from the Central Texas area at KYAR 98.3 in Palestine at KINF 107.9, and here in Bryan College Station, KEDC 88.5. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Gene. Do you have military background? Uh, no. <laughs> but, you, but you're on the path to sainthood, so at least... Uh, that's debatable. <laughs> I, I, you can talk to Father Charlie Banks to decide whether that's really true or not. Well, he's not allowed to say since, uh, you know... If he hears our confessions, he's not allowed to say. That's right. Uh, Let's do the St. Joseph's Prayer. Good morning. Uh, Since this is the year of St. Joseph, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. O blessed Joseph, faithful guardian of my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, protector of your chaste spouse, the Virgin Mother of God, I choose you this day to be my special patron and advocate, and I firmly resolve to honor you all the days of my life. Therefore, I humbly call on you to receive me as your adopted child, to instruct me in every doubt, to comfort me in every affliction, to obtain for me all the knowledge and love of the sacred heart of Jesus, and finally to defend and protect me at the hour of my death. Amen. Amen. And uh, thank you, St. Joseph, for being my second father. Amen to that. And so do you want to go to the uh, interview that we pre-recorded interview we have with Scott Carter? Sure, you want to give us a preview on what it is? Okay, Scott Carter, I've had him on my show previously, and he talked about uh, the life of Chaplain Emil Capon and uh, his path to sainthood. And and, uh, Scott is uh, coordinator for the Capon Guild uh, in the Diocese of Wichita, and uh, he has there's some updates on there. I think maybe shared one of them with you, but not the other. So let's listen to what Scott has to say. Okay, here you go. Uh, I have a guest with me now, uh, Scott Carter, who is the coordinator for the cause of Father Capon's uh, canonization. Good morning, Scott. Hey, good morning, Gene. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Yeah, keeping busy. Uh, lots of stuff going on with our office, so it's exciting times. Well, you want to talk about some of those? Uh, some exciting things have happened over the last several weeks or months, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Father Emil Capon, or Capon, as we know him in Wichita, uh, was a priest for the Diocese of Wichita, served uh, in the U.S. Army as well as a, a chaplain and uh, in World War II, but primarily the Korean War. I ended up dying, was was captured, uh, served about seven months in a prisoner of war camp and just uh, served the men there and gave his life really uh, for their sake, to keep them going, to provide for them. And um, when he died in the death house, uh, his body, his remains were never recovered. And so uh, up to this point, we really didn't know where they were. Uh, Some word had gotten out that uh, whoever buried him. Actually, the the Communist guards normally went along with the prisoners when 
they're burying their fellow prisoners and made them go by the river into a mass grave. Well, it turns out that uh, whoever buried them that day, the, the guards didn't go with them providentially. And so they were able to bury Father Capon's body uh, in the town near the death house, kind of behind a little lean-to. Um, as it turns out, there was it was May 23rd, 1951, but uh, they were so far north and it was so cold that the, the ground was still pretty frozen, so they couldn't really get them too far down and uh, went as far as they could, covered the rest with rocks, and just left him there. And mm-hmm. when the war ended, no one knew what happened uh, to him. Well, as it turns out, after the war, uh, there was an exchange of remains called Operation Glory, after the exchange of prisoners. And um, during this time, the uh, uh, there are about 800 remains that couldn't be identified of maybe the 4,000 that got returned. And of those 800, uh, they were all buried in the National Cemetery of the Pacific in Hawaii. And uh, up until recently, really had just been left there. Well, the government actually works to identify these remains. And uh, this March, we received the great news through the, the Capon family that Father Emil's remains were actually among those who were, were buried there. Uh, he's been there for close to 70 years. Uh, unlike a lot of the remains that they have, his skeleton is mostly intact. I think it's about 95% intact. And so uh, the the army turns the remains over to the, the family, and the, the family has decided that they want him to, to come to Wichita and be buried here in the cathedral so that people can come and visit and pray and pray for his cause and pray for his intercession. So we're just, I mean, over the moon, still excited about uh, all of this and planning for his, his homecoming events uh, late September. Okay, tell us a little bit about those homecoming events and give us the dates. So uh, Father Capon's remains uh, will be flying over from Hawaii. Uh, they'll arrive in Wichita September 25th, and we're, we're flying with American Airlines. And when he returns home, he's going to be taken up to his hometown of Pilsen, Kansas, so that the primarily the parish community up there can have some time with him uh, since he'll be buried in Wichita. And then September 28th and 29th are really the the big events. We'll be doing a vigil service for him on the 28th, and then Wednesday the 29th, uh, a funeral mass. And that's going to be at Hartman Arena, one of the arenas in town. Is that that on the uh, Wichita State campus, or is that downtown? It is north of Wichita, just a little bit. Okay. uh, Yeah, it's one of the arenas. And so... um, but after the, the funeral mass, we'll have a procession in downtown Wichita from uh, for a little under a mile uh, to the cathedral where people hopefully will be able to line the streets and uh, pay him respects, um, have the military honors, the 21-gun salute, taps, and everything uh, before his interment in the cathedral. And all that information, we have it at uh, capingcomeshome.com uh, on our website. So no, if uh, somebody interested in learning more, yeah. If they want to learn more, if they want to attend, are there is this a ticketed event or is it an open event? Yeah, so it's it's free, but it is ticketed just so that we can make sure people have seats. Uh, the funeral mass is getting more full, so uh, that we expect to sell out first, and then the vigil service I think will as well. Uh, the procession will just be you know open to the public, but then also it's going to be live streamed uh, from you know our our channels, but also EWTN will be. Uh, featuring at least a funeral mass, possibly even the vigil as well. So a good okay. opportunity to watch that on September 29th. Father Amel also received a, re- a recent award from a place that you wouldn't think he would. 
Yeah, so uh, it's been kind of a whirlwind for the the Capon family. Uh, Father Emil's nephew, Ray, who received the Medal of Honor on his uncle's behalf, uh, was invited to actually travel to South Korea uh, to receive an award from the South Korean government. Uh, it was that, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but the, the Taeguk uh, Order of Military Merit, which is actually their highest level of military award as well. And um, one of the people who's been awarded it was General Douglas MacArthur. So that uh, kind of gives you an idea of the company that he's in. But I uh, said so it was just a remarkable event uh, for for them to be over there and to witness the amount of respect that the South Koreans have for all the UN forces that fought to protect their freedom uh, during the war uh, and still just an, you know, an ongoing uh, gratitude that exists today and a, a really cool uh, recognition uh, for Father Capon. Okay, well, and that is, is great. I mean, his story is, is making the rounds again over there as well. Uh, one of the books that was written about him was translated into Korean years ago by the, um, by a seminarian who became the Cardinal and they just republished it again and put it out on the 70th anniversary of his death, uh, this past May. So uh, it's really an international story. Okay. Tell us again, uh, where people can get information about this homecoming event and about the progress of the canonization efforts for father Capon. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the homecoming events are at capencomeshome.com, and that's K-A-P-A-U-N. Um, and then you can link to, to find out more about the cause or uh, other other elements of his life uh, from that website as well. Okay. And where about in, in, in general information? Is that, uh, the, is that the general website or is another place where they can go to find out more information about the yeah, cause? Yeah, so it's it's embedded. It's a page on our main website, which is fathercapon.org. Okay. So either okay. way works. Scott, yeah, I appreciate you. Stay tuned at EWTN for, uh, okay. for the funeral mass. That's as well. great. And Scott, I appreciate so much your taking time to be with us. And uh, I know that you're very busy with all that's going on. And I wish you a great day. And uh, I know that this event is be- going to be uh, well attended and very uh, great celebration for the people of the Wichita Diocese. And I hope that it doesn't mean that you have more work than you can handle. <laughs> it's all great work. We appreciate it. And, uh, you know, once he's buried in the cathedral, there will be a great opportunity for people to come and make pilgrimage uh, and visit him as well. Will so. he be ma- buried in the main part of the church? Yes. Yeah, on one of the transepts on the side. So I'll okay. we'll have a, a tomb there. So, yeah. Thank you so much again, Scott. Uh, I know we'll be talking again as as this process of his canonization progresses. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay. That was uh, Scott Carter with the Diocese Very of Wichita. Very interesting interview. <clears throat> uh, and as, as I may have shared with some of you before, I'm particularly interested in that because the high school I went to uh, was named for Father Capon and uh, knew a lot of that was there. And, and there were some effects that came out of the prison camp, including a, a hmm. crucifix that was carved by one of the prisoners who I believe was Jewish that was in the uh, main entrance to the Oh, the wow. school, right by the chapel. 
So, uh, Dennis, yeah. we got some stuff coming up here in the next few weeks or days. We do. Days. We do. Let me let me cover a couple of things, or at least one thing. Uh, the Dwell Conference is coming up tomorrow. It's starting tomorrow here in the Bryan College Station area. If you're in uh, Palestine or in Waco area, you know, that's not too far to drive down for something like this. This is a great liturgical conference focused around the Eucharist. And uh, there's going to be multiple opportunities for Mass, but the whole thing kicks off tomorrow evening at 5.30 with the vote of Mass of Christ the High Priest. Then they're opening up the doors for a Matt Marr concert at 7 p.m., and then they have confessions during that time. But 7.30 to 9, they'll have a kickoff concert and a holy hour following that from 9 to 10. That's going to be a really a beautiful cer- ceremony. I've seen Matt Marr once in concert really is a great performer and a great artist, and it's very moving. So uh, it's not too late to get your tickets if you want to buy a ticket for that. The rest of the events are free, um, starting with the the Daily Mass in Latin, Votive Mass of the Holy Eucharist at 7 a.m. on Friday morning, but then they have rosaries in English and Spanish. Uh, All these things are on the website at STABCS, and that's... uh, the St. Thomas Aquinas website here in town. They have a daily Mass at 1215, votive Mass of the Precious Blood, another daily Mass at 530. So it's plenty of opportunities uh, to, to come and go to Mass. They have talks by Father Luis Gallo, uh, Catherine Whitaker, she's with our diocese, but with the East Texas Tyler Diocese, we have Dr. Stacy Trezankos coming down and a talk by Michael Gormley and Annie Hickman. So um, they have evening prayer, closing things off on Saturday with, you guessed it, Mass. But this one's the vigil of the Solemnity of the Assumption, so it counts for your Sunday obligation as well. So great opportunities at stabcs.org to find out more about Dwell, a liturgical conference and experience starting tomorrow night with Matt Mark concert. Oh, sorry, Gene. I, no, you no, I, t- you. I turned myself ah, off. Your fault. Uh, uh, and that is at... Uh, Christ the Good Shepherd, which is on Coulter Avenue off of 29th Street in Bryan. It is. It is. So if you go to the website, it'll give directions and address and everything is there. So it's going to be a great experience. I think it's something that's uh, it's labeled as a deanery celebration, but my God, goodness, it 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 could be well beyond our deanery, people. Yeah. We, we yeah. hope to come. Y'all come, as they say. Y'all come. It's going to be great. And our saint of the day today is St. Francis of Assisi. Or St. Francis, it's St. Clair of Assisi. Pardon me. And uh, interestingly enough, she was a very wealthy person and chose to follow uh, Jesus in a different way after she heard St. Francis preach. Uh, So uh, we'll be back back after a brief respite for talking about some of the things that are going on. And we will have Father Sinclair Oub, who will be talking about... Leonard LaRue and his cause for sainthood. Wow, lots of saints coming in the making. St. Jen Wilhelm. Welcome back to Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Gene Wilhelm, and uh, 
I invite all of our listeners to call in if they have a question or a comment during this interview that's coming up. Uh, those of you who are at KEDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley or KYAR 98.3 in Central Texas or KINF 107.9 in Palestine. My guest today is Father Sinclair Oob, and he, Father Sinclair has a rather interesting history himself, but we're going to be talking about Brother Moranis, or Leonard LaRue, as he was known before he entered the, the Benedictine um, order. Good morning, Father. Did, are you there? Yep, yeah, I'm okay, here. Okay, I'm Thank sorry. You. Good morning. How are you today? Just fine, just fine. Yours? And I hope you guys can hear me clearly. Yes, we're doing fine. You're doing great. When we talked um, maybe a month or so ago before you went on Rather Long Voyage, which we need to talk about a little bit, too, you told me something about your background. Your background is very interesting. Uh, tell us a little bit your, about your childhood and your decision to become a priest. Well, it, um, I grew up in Port Arthur, Texas, and uh, folks will know Port Arthur because it is the place where Gulf Oil was founded and where Texaco had its first refinery and where Janice Joplin was born and raised and sang at uh, First Christian Church Choir with her mother being a choir mistress. And uh, Jimmy Johnson from uh, the Dallas Cowboy football fame uh, was from this area also. So uh, Southeast Texas, we do energy down here. Uh, That's what we do. So we do petroleum products, gasoline, diesel, uh, and we also have the largest uh, liquid natural gas export facility in North America uh, down here. So uh, we do energy. Was your pe- family a petroleum-based family? Well, I come from a family of carpenters, actually, uh, at least three generations of carpenters. Uh, my dad eventually did go to work at Texaco Refinery, which later became Motiva. But uh, my tradition, the family tradition, is actually carpenters, home builders, primarily, and also cabinetry builders in the process. So that's where I come out of in my experience. So and, uh, so basically you had a St. Joseph raising you. Well, not only had a St. Joseph, but his baptismal name was Joseph also. And and uh, drive the point home, he died May 1st, 2020, on the Feast of St. Joseph. So uh, there's a number of dynamics that are working wow. there. Wow. That's really interesting. Tell us about your childhood, then. You you were raised in this family of carpenters in Port Arthur, Texas. Is there anything outstanding about that childhood? Well, you know, the way Port Arthur is laid out, it's laid out on the Intracoastal Canal and the Port Arthur Ship Channel that takes tankers and freighters from the Gulf of Mexico, and then they sail up the ship channel, either stopping at the Port of Port Arthur, the refineries, uh, Gulf, Texaco, now now Motiva or Valero and uh, Total, or, or head up to Beaumont where the ExxonMobil refinery is. And you, the way the city's laid out, you can see the ships sailing past, and it it was like a building going across the street because you would see the you would see the tree line at the edge of the road. And then you'd see this, the superstructure of the ship going by, which looked like a building moving across the street. And even as a little kid, I was tremendously attracted to the sea. I watched, um, I watched SeaQuest. I watched 2,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I watched every Jacques Cousteau um, 
documentary that was on TV at that time. It was just a constant experience of anything that had to do with the sea. I was not much into beaches, you know, I could take it or leave it. But as far as the sea or being on the water, uh, it was always a special time for me. When we'd go to Galveston and get to have a ferry ride across the Houston Ship Channel, the Galveston Ship Channel, that was always a, a highlight because I was at sea. And so this uh, passion to go to sea has always always been something part of my life. And um, I just sort of write it off as God's will that even though I'm 80 miles away from the one of the six merchant marine academies in the United States, and that being the Texas Maritime Academy in Galveston, Texas. When I graduated from high school in 1976, didn't know anything about it at all. And I didn't know about the Federal Academy in uh, Kings Point, New York, the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, which would have been a, like the other academies, a congressional appointment and free um, ride going through there. And so in, when I graduated from high school, I entered St. Mary's Seminary in Houston, but I feel strongly that if I'd have known these two institutions would have existed, I would have applied to one or the other and probably spent a couple of years sailing maybe up to chief mate on the ship because driving the ship, I really enjoyed doing that type of stuff before I would have come back around and entered into the seminary at that, uh, again. But uh, God made sure that I did not know anything about that stuff. And so my sophomore year of uh, college seminary, we had a young man from Louisiana, from La Diocese of Lafayette, who had worked already on workboats, which serviced drilling rigs out in the Gulf of Mexico. So they would load these what are called workboats, about 185-foot, 225-foot boats, uh, open back deck with a casing or drill pipe. They would have mud tanks and uh, uh, also diesel tanks so that they could service the drilling rigs offshore. And so my sophomore year, I got a job working for that, for them. And then the next year, I actually worked on a tank for a tanker company in Port Arthur for the summer. So uh, I was able to sort of satiate my desire to go to sea by, by doing those things. Uh, beginning in 1990, after I was ordained to the priesthood in 86, I, I sort of got the sirens were calling me again to go back to sea. And I met the vice president of the Seafarers International Union out of Houston. And he said, come on over. And so uh, for a lot of the summers since 1990, uh, not all of them, but quite a few of them, I've been able to uh, get 30-day jobs on uh, U.S. merchant ships, often doing Jones Act work, sailing, uh, carrying on, working on a tanker, say, a lot from Texas, Louisiana to Florida. Or uh, I've done a cable repair job in the Caribbean or, and also uh, also did a tow from uh, Morgan City, Louisiana to uh, Curacao, which was really cool. So um, done some different maritime experiences. And when I'm on there, I'm on there as a member of the crew sailing in that capacity. And, uh, and I'll bring my mass kit with me and I'll celebrate mass on Sundays. And if some of the crew members want to join me, all the better. Now, you told me uh, when we talked earlier that this experience during your seminary years doing this exposed you to some things very different from what you were learning in seminary and language as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, and and I, I sincerely think about that I, I, uh, a lot. It's very possible for, for a young man to you know, hang around the church as an altar boy and then 
graduate from high school and then enter into college seminary where where he goes from his mother at home to the mother of the church and then you know during the summers work around the parish and then uh, eventually would make his way through theology tra- training and then ordained and, and never actually have to work in a uh, crushingly hot, difficult, dirty, dusty experience that most men and fathers do in their own life. And um, I have always felt that a part of we a part of a seminary formation program should be putting a uh, theology student on a drilling rig for six months. Uh, and after he gets cussed at and gets totally dirty working on a drilling rig and with a bunch of men who really don't care that he's a priest or not, <laughs> once he comes out of that experience, he'll be, he'll be much more mature and uh, broad, have a broad life experience that he can't get within the seminary and church context. <laughs> so what was, what was the driving factor that, major decision to become a priest? Uh, you know, I was, I, I went to Catholic school. I went uh, first through eighth grade, and then I graduated from Bishop Byrne High School in Fort Arthur. The Incarnate Word Sisters uh, actually formed me all, all uh, 12 years of school. Um, I was sort of attracted to what the priest was doing on the altar. My family was not an exceptionally Catholic uh, group of people. Um, we we went to mass every Sunday and we served mass, but we weren't a pray the rosary or say grace before meals type of thing. But I I admired what the priests were doing, but at the same time, it was always a challenge for me in the seminary because they would ask, well, you know, what priest inspired you to follow in his footsteps? And in fact, there were no priests that inspired me at that time in my formation. Since then, I've met some outstanding priests who are like yeah, these guys I'll follow into hell with, you know, to, to go battle Satan. But at that time, no, I, there wasn't really any priest that inspired me. And in fact, to some degree, because of the, I guess, maybe lackadaisical attitude toward the priesthood, uh, I was I was sort of attracted to be not like some of the priests, not that they were scandalous or anything, but just no fire in the belly type of thing. Uh, so, I, I, uh, I, I recognize a fire in your belly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's beat some drums <laughs> and do some rites of passage. <laughs> uh, let, let me we'll interrupt a, for just we'll a, a second. here. <laughs> uh, let me interrupt for a second just to remind folks that they're listening to Red Sea Roundup uh, with Gene Wilhelm. My guest today is Father Sinclair Oob, pardon me, and you're listening on either KEDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 98.3 in Central Texas, or KINF. 107.9 in Palestine, and I have just realized that I asked you to call, and I didn't give you a phone number. Oh, you can call us at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. Father, uh, you wear several hats right now, correct? Correct, correct. I'm the—so let me go get the list down. I'm the pastor of St. Francis of Assisi Church in Orange, Texas, and I like to tell people here in Texas that that we are the last Catholic church that you can pray at in Texas before you get to the casinos in Louisiana. And <laughs> so I'm you also, can you can pray for good luck there, right? You can pray for good luck. Now, I do demand that if you do win, you have to tithe on your way back to St. Francis, and I guess nobody ever wins because they never do that. <laughs> and then um, I'm the 
a director of the Permanent Diaconate Formation Program. So I oversee the formation of our next generation of permanent deacons. We have uh, 13 in that class right now, All some really, really great men who are going to do great in about two years when it's time to ordain them. I am the, um, I'm also the uh, diocesan director for Stella Maris, which is the Catholic ministry to the people of the sea. Uh, that since since 1920, the Catholic Church has officially had a apostolic work of going out to the ships and seafarers, visiting the ships, offering the sacramental life of the church to the seafarers, assisting them with their spiritual and temporal needs. Just just yesterday, um, I left the parish here in the afternoon and ran to Port Arthur and uh, visited the uh, motor vessel Heranger, which was at the port of Port Arthur. Uh, Friday, Saturday, they were in Mobile, and one of the crew members was killed in an industrial accident uh, on the vessel. And so it was really nice that Father Lito Capanating and uh, Deacon Archer in Mobile were able to go on the ship, uh, say a mass for the seafarer, also bless the ship. And I was able to then return back yesterday afternoon and visited with the captain and discovered there that they had been longtime friends. And so it was really weighing heavily on his heart that uh, while he was the master of the vessel, his his friend, close friend who had sailed with for many years uh, had passed away. So that's the church being present to that 1.5 million merchant sailors who were on the international fleet to say nothing of the Oh, about 200,000 merchant sailors who sail in our domestic fleet on the inland towing vessels or on the ferries. You know, if you go down to Bolivar, that ferry that runs from Bolivar to Galveston, that's U.S. Merchant Marines. And though there's not a lot of ministry to those guys because they live nearby and they can go to their own church, nonetheless, they are part of that ministry that's there. Okay. And you so, have, uh, and that's you... that, that piece. So those are the those are the three big things, and I'm also the Episcopal Vicar for the Eastern Vicariate of our Diocese and Central Presbyterian Council and 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 other stuff. <laughs> and then you've got this other thing that we're going to talk about today. Tell us about this other thing, the pro- promoting the cause. Yeah, I was as a merchant sailor, and also because I was involved with the, I've been involved with um, the Catholic ministry to seafarers since 1988. In about 2002, 2003, I read uh, Bill Gilbert's book, Ship of Miracles, because I did not know that story. As much as I was engaged in the maritime industry, uh, I I did not know this story about uh, Captain Leonard LaRue or the uh, Meredith victory or the situation in Hung Nam. And the rescue that he took that that happened there. So in a a nutshell, uh, well, take a step back. It's really interesting that here in Port Arthur that we have had two people who have had causes for sainthood to actually walk our streets. Uh, Sacred Heart Church here in Port Arthur was founded by Catherine Drexel and her and her sisters staffed the school there. And so she would come to Port Arthur and also Beaumont and visit her her uh, schools. And so she came to Sacred Heart, she came to Port Arthur, and she was a Philadelphia girl born and raised there, and she's now become St. Catherine Drexel. And then also, um, Captain Leonard LaRue went through the Pennsylvania Nautical School and graduated with his third mate's degree, third mate's license, in 1934. And in 1934, his first ship that he was on 
was the uh, was the Francis E. Powell, and for six months he sailed that ship basically from the East Coast to Port Arthur because it was owned by Atlantic Refining Company, and their refinery was in Port Arthur, and so he would basically take refined products from Port Arthur and bring them up to Philadelphia or to uh, Rhode Island, and then come back to Port Arthur. And I've logged that at least during that period of time from uh, July through December of 1934 that he that ship made at least three calls here before he got off of it. So there's a connection between Captain LaRue and actually my hometown because he probably, when he was off, walked the streets of downtown Port Arthur during that time, which was quite a, um, how do you say, a, a sailor's town. <laughs> now, you, you sort of, you were sort of backed into this uh, place, uh, role of being a promoter of the cause of his sainthood, weren't you? I mean, was it something... Yeah, it, there was... Uh, you know, I, I read the book and I thought it was really interesting. And, you know, it was like we could really use a modern day merchant sailor who could be a model for us of what it means to be a Catholic mariner living in the challenges of the sea while at the same time living out a life of faith. And so he sailed from, uh, I think, 1934 to 1954, those 20 years. And in that and after that time, he joined the Benedictine Monastery in Newton, New Jersey, St. Paul's Abbey, where he lived there until uh, 2001. And in fact, in October will be the 20th anniversary of his passing. So here was somebody who uh, was an excellent mariner, participated in PQ-13, sailing from Iceland to Murmansk and the, and the dangers that were there. Of the 19 ships that sailed in that convoy, uh, six of them were lost to the Luftwaffe and German U-boats. Then, uh, then he participates with MacArthur in the Inchon landing and nearly capsizes because they, they're overwhelmed by a typhoon that happens the day before they make the Inchon landing. And then he participates in rescuing 14,000 North Koreans from Hunam and basically who he was the last ship carrying refugees out. And if you weren't on that ship, you were never heard from again. That's, that's a point okay. that Gilbert, uh, Bill Gilbert makes in his Okay, now let's, let's talk about those books. Ship of Miracles mm -hmm. by Bill Gilbert is available on Amazon. Uh, and The Mariner and the Monk by Philip Lacavara is available at Amazon. Bill Lacavara, and, yeah. Laca, uh, say it again? Lacavara. Lacavara is available at Amazon hey, okay. and Target. Six months to learn that. <laughs> okay. And there's also a documentary at shipofmiracles.com that you can see mm -hmm. more about this. Now, let's talk about this whole thing of the rescue uh, of the 14,000 people. Uh, can you give us a little details on what that is, how yes, that happened? And, and I'll certainly point you to Phil Lacavera's new book uh, because he really gives a good background on the beginning of the Korean War and the buildup to what takes place. But uh, so here you have Captain LaRue, beginning of 1950, uh, the North Koreans invade South Korea. They push through Seoul. They go down uh, around Pusan. All of a sudden, the U.S. and the United Nations are involved in that turmoil. The U.S. activates a lot of ships to begin to supply military cargo to Korea, uh, Captain LaRue was working for more McCormick Lines at that point. 
He is named captain of the Meredith Victory, which was a Victory-class ship from the Second World War, about six years old at that time. And she was in the James River in Virginia. And so he crews up there. They sail through the Panama Canal. They come to Oakland, load in Oakland. And to point out the faith of Captain LaRue, how it was a living thing for him, uh, Robert Lunny, who was his staff officer and, and is one of the three surviving crew members of the Meredith Victory from that time, records in, Gilbert, in Bill Gilbert's book that when they finished, they made three calls before they sailed from Oakland. And one was to the Mormon McCormick office to get orders and instructions. One to what has now become the Military Sealift Command, uh, I forget their Military Transportation Company or something like that, in 1950 it was called, in order to get his sailing orders. And then finally to, uh, I think it was Old St. Patrick's Church, or Old St. Mary's Church in San Francisco. And Lenny was all, is also Catholic. And so they spent a moment in the church in prayer before they boarded the ship. Or, sailed, sailed from Oakland, went to Japan, in Japan, they discharged the cargo and also took on other cargo and then went to Korea. And they began to shuttle cargo back and forth from Japan to Korea. Then they became part of the 27-ship convoy that made up the Incheon landing of General MacArthur. So if you can imagine, the North Koreans came down the, uh, came down the uh, Korean Peninsula and then... MacArthur plans an invasion that basically cuts them off uh, south of Seoul and therefore makes that landing, changes the war effort, um, and begins to move, move northward. The U.S. Army becomes very close to the Chinese border, if I remember correctly. 100,000 Chinese pour into the war. The U.S. and Allied forces are forced to retreat through what's been known as the, in, the Battle of the Inchon Reservoir uh, in the hills during November and December of, uh, of 1950 in a horrendously, bitterly cold time. And, the and eventually 120,000 U.S. and Allied troops retreat to Hunnam which is north of the present uh, 38th parallel demilitarized zone in, uh, in Korea. And there's a big evacuation that takes place. At the same time, many North Koreans, having both experienced the occupation of the Japanese from the 1930s to the end of the Second World War and then the communists uh, post-World War II, were also fleeing to Hunan. And so you had 90,000 North Koreans who were seeking refuge at that point. Uh, at first, there was going to be no refugees taken. But some Korean leaders pressed upon the U.S. military, and they began to place them on the vessel as they had space. And then finally, on December 22nd, there were uh, 14,000 North Koreans who still were on, uh, in Hunan. And the Army officials approached uh, Captain LaRue and said, you know, we've got this uh, situation, but the harbor's mined. The, chi the Chinese are moving into the city. Uh, there's shelling all around the port. It's a very dangerous situation, and it's up to you to take it. And he said, I don't have the quote exactly, but 
it's pretty much he decided immediately because there were people in danger and he had to go protect them. And so he took the ship in and from the from the beginning on the 22nd to the 23rd, they loaded 14,000 uh, North Koreans on this 480 foot vessel by putting them on the on the lower level. And then there was what's called two, two tween decks. So they could close the decks uh, so that you would have a second level of cargo hold. So you actually had three decks under the main deck. And then they loaded all those. And then they loaded everybody on the main deck. If you imagine today, the largest passenger ships that we have are about 1,100 feet long. And they'll carry 7,000 to 8,000 people. This 485-foot vessel carried 14,000 people. From and they sailed on on uh, uh, December 23rd. They arrived Christmas Eve in Pusan. Uh, a couple of people who were sick were taken off at that point. Some people who were thought to be communist spies were taken off at that point. And then they went to Jojido Island, where they discharged 14,005 people, because during the journey they delivered uh, five babies along the way. Uh, which was really, really great. And what was amazing, in the midst of this bitterly cold December winter, and in the midst of no food or water for those basically two days for the people on board, no one died. No one died. And the pre- and if it wouldn't have been for the courage of Captain LaRue and his crew, the present president of Korea would not be here. Because President Moon, his parents and sister were on the Meredith victory. And they would have been left on the beach in, uh, in Hunnam. And as I said, according to, to Bill Gilbert's book, none of the family members who did not make that trip, uh, make the vessel, were ever heard from again. So I think there was probably some communist purging taking place at that point. Now, if I remember- so it, was, it was an incredible story. If I remember correctly, didn't uh, Captain LaRue have his crew throw a lot of stuff overboard to make room for more people? Uh, they they discharged. They had cargo. Uh, they had gone to push something. They were they were doing the shuttling of materials. <clears throat> they went to Pusan and discharged what they could, but they still had quite a bit of jet fuel or actually said aviation fuel in barrels in the holes and. There, there are some historical narratives out there that describe that situation as having cargo and then discharging, but I don't think they discharged very much in Hunan. They had already known that they were going to be doing uh, relief and evacuation when they, when they were dispatched to go north from Busan. But what was true was that they did have this jet fuel in barrels there, and uh, there are so many ways that this could have gotten screwed up. Could have gotten screwed up because as they were sailing in, they could have hit a mine and sank. There was at least one minesweeper that did and was lost during that camp, during that time period. They could have loaded 14,000 people on board and turned around and sailed and hit a mine and were lost. But they also had these barrels of aviation fuel. And because of the bitter cold, but also because some of the folks had brought food with them, they used the top of the drums, not knowing what was in them, in order to cook their food. <laughs> so there was a big chance that they could have ignited 
those barrels and then had a conflation in the in the hole, which could have spread through the entire church, which hundreds of thousands of people could have been killed in this fire. The crew quickly saw that this was the danger and they stopped them from cooking on top of these uh, aviation gas barrels. But nonetheless, that could have happened. Uh, the fact that, you know, you had a couple of, a number of thousands of people who were actually on the main deck exposed to the, to the uh, wind of the December in, in the uh, East Sea for two days, and yet nobody died in the process. So it's quite an amazing, amazing thing. Now, F- Blunder LaRue's earlier life, uh, tell us a little bit about that, because it describes the type of person that he became before he was in this event. Yeah, he, um, you know, there's the, one of our challenges, actually one of our challenges and one of our blessings in this cause is that we don't have a lot of information, and he um, didn't write a lot. I have a friend who's heading up the cause for Dorothy Day, and she has like 20,000 pages of books, articles, and letters that all have to be transcribed, and they have to be studied for orthodoxy. <laughs> So we don't have that problem. But on the other hand, we don't have a lot of information about his early life. Now, I think the person who's done the best job of trying to cobble together that is, is Phil Lacavera in his book, Mariner and the Monk. But, you know, he, he was born and raised in Philadelphia. Uh, his father was French-Canadian. His mother, I think, was from Philadelphia. He grew up in a Catholic church there. Uh, when he decided, when he graduated from high school, he decided to go to the Pennsylvania uh, Nautical School and participated fully in that. But there's, you know, other than a couple of pictures in yearbooks and a couple of other photographs and um, some some articles or letters from people who were on cruises with him, there's just not a lot of information that is there. But what we see is that uh, going to Mass was important to him, his devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary was important to him. And though he could not uh, make be part of the sacramental life of the church, very often he made himself available when he could. Before, between, if I remember correctly, between World War II and the beginning of the Korean War, he was working for more McCormick Lines, <coughs> running a freighter from uh, uh, the eastern United States down to Brazil. And in one case, he transported some Benedictine monks who uh, would celebrate Mass on board with him, and he spent a lot of time talking with them. And if I remember correctly in Phil's book, he notes that um, the monk is reputed to have told him that this was not really the life that he should have been living, that God was calling him to something different. But it's very I find it very interesting that when he left the sea, so here's a shipmaster, a man who you know has been in enemy action, who has uh, saved his ship from capsizing in a in a typhoon and all those types of things that he, that he um, uh, when he left and joined the monastery there was no intention of him being a priest he was basically the servant he went from being in maritime term he went from being the captain of the ship to the ordinary seaman on at the monastery so he worked at the gift shop he um, welcomed the guest. He rang the bell to get the monks up in the morning. He answered the phone. He did the the most humble and menial tasks that were there in the monastery. And that's what his life was from 19, 
1954 till 2001. Now, so he, uh, he, he became a Benedictine monk, which it also means that he was uh, somewhat cloistered as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't, except, except for going to, I think it was in New York, was it? Um, or maybe it was Washington, D.C., in order to receive a special award when the Meredith Victory was received the Meritorious Ship Award for its action in Hunan, and going to the doctor, he, he seldom ever left the monastery. That's quite a change for a man that sailed around the world. Mm-hmm, yep. And quite a change for a man that who was in charge of not only his own life, but a lot of other lives. So we're, you know, we're, we're trying, and, I, and what I really appreciate about being able to do this show today is to let people know about the story. You know, we didn't talk about um, Mac, uh, Bill McHatt or uh, Mac, Robert McHatton's uh, documentary, Ships of Miracle, but anybody can go and just Google up Ships of Miracle, and they can watch this great one-hour documentary that he did. And what, what Bill Gilbert doesn't have uh, McHatton does. He interviews a lot of the living people, Koreans, who had been on the ship so that they could share their story of what it was and their thoughts. And a side story there is one of the refugees was a young girl who was 15 years old. She gets to Jojido Island. She eventually go, grows up. She, uh, she goes to college in Germany. Uh, in Germany, she encounters the Catholic Church. She becomes Catholic. She enters a religious community, takes the name of Sister Bernadetta, uh, goes back to Korea and lives as a religious sister. And she is the first one, I think, who has said, and this is way before I got involved in this, that Captain LaRue should become a saint because of his courageous action in saving all those people. And when you sort of do the math on this, of those, of those 90,000 uh, North Koreans who were rescued, uh, they figure that there's over a million descendants that have come from those folks. And you think about it, if, those, if, if that actions of uh, the Allied forces in the U.S. Merchant Marine and the other mariners who were there in taking these people off the beach, uh, none of those people would have life today. Now, so, you're d- uh, we'll, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, you know, I want to get over to the cause. You know, I really want right. to thank Bishop Sarah Kelly. Um, but how did well, your diocese he, get involved in the cause? He was from Philadelphia. The the uh, well, monastery that he was in is not anywhere near uh, Beaumont, right. Port Arthur. Mm-hmm. So I figured it was going to take me two years to, uh, con- in communication with Bishop Ceratelli of the Diocese of Patterson, that I'm not crazy, I'm not a, a goofball priest in Texas, and that he could he could trust me in like initiating this cause. This cause causes, except in exceptional situations, have to be begun, be begun in the diocese from where the person is buried, where the person died. I should say where the person died, which initiates the cause. And so I had no connection to the diocese of Patterson, New Jersey. Um, but there was some connection that was going on there through Robert Lunny because he had worked with um, uh, he had he had visited with Captain uh, with Brother Marinus frequently and so there was some connection there so I met with Lunny and then I eventually 
floated some letters to Bishop Saratelli. Uh, we finally organized a mer uh, meeting, I think, in 2018, where we sat down together with the uh, uh, with the um, uh, bishop, and we laid this plan out. And much to my amazement, Bishop Saratelli said, "Well, what do I need to do?" <laughs> you know, instead of instead of like begging him and hounding him for a couple of years. So it really kicked the thing off very, very quickly. He issued the decree initiating cause. At that point, uh, uh, Brother Marinus received the title of Servant of God. He constituted a tribunal to begin to do the historical and the theological investigation of this. Uh, we've been able to interview those three crew members and a few other old, older people who, by the time we get around to the process of interviewing witnesses, may pass away because there's a process to this. So um, it's been moving forward. And then we had that great event in June at the bishops conference when the bishops endorsed as a conference, both our cause and also the cause for Father Lafleur from La Lafayette, Louisiana. There's, there, there's, it's really sort of interesting, side note, uh, there's actually two causes that are caught up in the Chosen Reservoir uh, Hung Nam event. And one is ours, but there's also the story of Father Capon, who was a military chaplain and stayed behind after the Chinese invaded with those who were wounded and was caught up and taken into the Chinese uh, prisoner of war camp and eventually died of diseases there. But his story is just an incredibly powerful thing of faith, because after all the brutality of being in the in the prisoner of war camp, as they are carrying him to the death house, he turned and asked the forgiveness of his Korean guards that if he had offended them or hurt them while he was in prison there, that he asked for their forgiveness. Now, man, that's a type of mercy that goes beyond any of my capacity right now. Uh, but, there, but then he was doing that while at the same time you had Captain LaRue and Hung Nam rescuing all these people. Now, I'm going to ask you a question about some of this. Uh, what I hear he, is with uh, Captain LaRue that one can live a holy life and do uh, things for God as a secular person. You don't have to be in a Benedictine monastery or ordained a priest. Mm -hmm. it's, and so what do you think some of the things are that, that make for that with a person, just say an ordinary lay person? You know, I... I the Second Vatican Council made that really important insight for us because we had we had gotten into a mentality that, you know, the the higher you go up in the ecclesiastical structure, the holier you are. We associated we associated religious life with holiness, and so since 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 most Catholics couldn't leave the conjugal act behind, and they wanted to have children and got married. You know, that was sort of the low, the low part of the, of the pyramid. And then you just sort of moved up until you get to the, the cloistered uh, uh, Franciscans, uh, the, the poor clares, or you get to, you know, a hermit someplace, or you get to the Pope, and that becomes the pinnacle of holiness. And the Second Vatican Council said, no, 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 no. All the baptized are called to holiness. And each state of life, is a vocation from God that if you follow it will bring about your salvation. And in that process, you are called 
to a life of holiness. And so if you are a married husband or a wife, you are called to a sense of holiness. And that holiness is not just chastity, but that spirituality and that participation in the sacraments and integrating into the church and passing the faith on to your children in a vibrant, profound way. And if it means being a priest, living that life out holy and being available to others and bring the sacramental life to people at the time of death or to witness to that in, uh, with fire in, in one's preaching, those become the means by which one comes to holiness. And so LaRue, as a, as a captain before the council, is manifesting that call to holiness, that he, he never left behind his Catholic identity, praying before he left Oakland, uh, going to mass when the when he was uh, had the Benedictines on board, making himself available for mass when it was avail- possible when he was on board ship, all those things of living out his faith as fully as he could, and at the same time talking to the crew members, you see that it wasn't vulgarity when he had to do discipline on crew members. It was just, uh, and usually yep. the the crew members would simply say, "Yeah, I did it." <laughs> okay. Hey, in 25 seconds or less, how would you like to summarize what you said? Because we're just about out of time. <laughs> yeah, I can uh, just to say that we are all called to holiness. And no matter what work you're doing uh, and what degree that you have access to the physical parish churches, we can live out our Catholic faith as fully and I think as we possibly can. And I think LaRue manifests that, that whether he is in a convoy to Murmansk or whether he's in the middle of a typhoon, he can be a man of God. And okay. Life. God bless, Father. You're listening, you've listening to Red Sea Roundup. Remember, we're choosing between the values of heaven and the values of earth. Always round up. <laughs> <laughs>